Well, before we get back to the study where we left off, I want to hand out this thing. We talked about the criteria for canonicity <laughs> last time, so I got this kind of list of the what the uh, church fathers looked for when they were deciding which books should be in the Bible and which should not. So he passes that. Um, the numbering is a little off there, you'll see. <laughs> okay. I don't know why that happened. Um, but it starts with five. There should be one. I don't know why that happened. Anyway, there are basically six things they looked for. Is it? Well, the one that the copy I have is starts with number five. This is one through six. Okay, then you then you then you lucked out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, it's an error. Um, so just go through these briefly. Um, in order to be recognized as an inspired writing, uh, it had to be written by a recognized prophet or apostle. had to be authoritative. Uh, it had to be written by or written by someone who's associated with a recognized apostle or prophet. For example, Mark uh, basically wrote down Peter's recollections. And so when they read what Mark wrote, they said, oh, that's from Peter. <laughs> so, so Mark is okay. Truthfulness is another issue they look for. It had to be accurate. Okay. Uh, faithfulness to previously accepted canonical writings had to be consistent with uh, what had already been accepted as canonical. It had to be confirmed by Christ or a prophet or an apostle. And um, a big one there was the church usage and recognition. So they basically polled all the churches and said, what do you think? <laughs> what have you been using as scripture? Okay. And there's a website there that, from which I got all of these. You'll find different lists depending on the source. Okay. Um, so this happened to be the list that's on this website. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, that's a good question. The final date on which they... I'm not sure. I'm not what sure. The when, the, when the final canon was finalized. Uh, it was in the 4th century. Yeah, I think. yeah. yeah it, was, it was somewhere around the 4th century. Um, yeah. yeah it, it was, um, and I think you mentioned before, but it's, it's always, uh, <coughs> these things happen when we have heresies that are challenging the church. Right. And, uh, and so, these, um, you know, the idea of trying to identify which ones really were God's word and not, um, didn't become a major issue until you have certain works that are being affirmed as God's word that was really not Right. Uh, but yeah, I would say I would say it was a probably the fourth century uh, around there. Yeah, that's generally what what I've seen. <laughs> yeah, but so I don't the, have an exact date. Yeah, the, the first because um, the first <clears throat> the reason why I think that the first 
first centuries, really, Christianity was under a lot of under a lot of persecution, and it really took a turn uh, when Constantine yeah. um, supposedly devoted um, himself to Christ. That's highly questionable whether he really did or not, but he did um, by the providence of God provide safety for Christians. And, and at that time, that's why we have such an explosion of rich theological writings mm -hmm. that, that happened uh, right around the fourth century. So a lot of these uh, councils started to take place, and a lot of discussions started to take place, and, and, uh, and, and these things were, were being discussed and, and determined. So that would make sense for the fourth century. Right, right. Another boy here. <clears throat> All right, so back to the little presentation here. We've been talking about the... Um, uh, different aspects of interpretation. Uh, the, we talked about the, the goals of the, the interpreter, um, the assumptions that the interpreter makes. And last time we talked about the equipment. We started to talk about the equipment of the interpreter. Um, we talked about everything on this slide last week, so this is just kind of background. So... You need to know the languages, the original languages. The more familiar you are with the languages, the easier it is to understand what the text is saying. I just finished a book recently that was quite disturbing, actually. <laughs> um, it's called Exegetical Fallacies. Ex exegesis, as we'll discuss in a few minutes here, is bringing the meaning out of the text. And there's a process to follow to do that. And this writer was D.A. Carson. You know, he's really good. Uh, he pointed out some of the problems that, that uh, or mistakes that people make when they are trying to analyze a text. And he basically turned everything I learned about Greek <laughs> on its head. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, <laughs> what do we do now? Um, but, Having said that, <laughs> the more you know about the languages, <laughs> the better off you're going to be, the easier it will be to understand what the text says. And that has to do with the forms and the meanings of the words, the, the meanings of clauses and sentences, how language goes together to uh, make the point. Also, knowing history is helpful. You want to check the extra-biblical sources. Um, the big wide world context surrounding the Bible gives you insight into um, what the writers were dealing with. And we talked about Jonah last time, knowing the nature of Nineveh, and you can understand why he was reluctant. <laughs> okay. They were not nice people. Uh, understanding the thought process of the different people surrounding the the. Scripture is helpful, and we looked at the, the word logos word. Uh, the Greeks kind of looked at it as the rationale or the reason behind everything. We get our word logic from this word. Um, and the Greeks were more cerebral about things, okay, more analytical. The Jews used it as God's expression, you know. God revealing things to us. So the word of God was different to the Jews <laughs> than it was to the Greeks. So having an understanding, if you, who's talking? You know, when you're reading a passage, is this a Greek talking or is this a Jew talking? 
<laughs> so you have a better understanding of what the word logos is going to mean in that context. <clears throat> so we covered that last week. So starting off new this week, uh, another piece of equipment for the interpreter is theology. Um, basically, it's the framework for interpretation. We're going to talk more about theology maybe tonight, we'll see, maybe next week. There are different kinds of theology, and it's important to understand theology because, especially systematic theology, because it gives you the big picture, but you have to be careful <laughs> with theology, and especially when you're getting your information from a source, you got to know if that source is really handling things accurately. Okay? Because they may give you a theological point of view on something, but it might not be right. That word exegesis. Exegesis, yeah. Is that extracting? Right. Yeah, the G-E-S-I-S part is a Greek word for text, and the E-X means out, so it's out of the text. Okay, so we're going to talk more about those definitions in a few slides here. But yeah, it's to draw the meaning out. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, I guess the Latin equivalent to this doesn't have anything to do with this. So <laughs> the Latin equivalent would be to educe, from which we get our word education. To educe, the D-U-C-E means to draw or to move, and the E is out, so to move out of. And really, we don't have education in America. <laughs> we have indoctrination. Socrates did real education. He would ask questions that made his students think, and they would come up with the answer on them on their own. So he was educing, bringing the answer out of their heads. And they killed him. Yeah, <laughs> they killed him for it. <laughs> So anyway, that, it means to bring the meaning out of the text. So having a, a theological background helps you to be able to do that. Okay. But you have to be careful. Uh, it gets you, enables you to see the whole picture in order to understand the parts. Again, it gives you the background so you can figure out how each part of Scripture fits in with the theological picture. <clears throat> It's good to know the types of theology, and, and what I said a minute ago, there are different kinds of theology. I wasn't talking about this. <laughs> I was talking about something else. But if you're reading a source, you have to know, is, is this a Catholic writer? Is this a Lutheran writer? <laughs> because the different denominations see things differently. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes as well. Um, so you have to be able to evaluate. Also, familiarity with the text is going to be important. It's another piece of equipment for the interpreter. You have to read it all <laughs> for proper understanding. You have to get the context. There's an organization out there that's, that's kind of focused on apologetics, but their motto is never read a scripture verse. And what they mean by that is don't isolate the verse. Read it in context. <laughs> Because if you read just the verse, you, don't ha you have no idea what it means. And we're going to talk about how that leads to some problems here as we go along. 
So you got to read the whole text. Context is essential. And then study related texts. This is called correlation, where you correlate the text you're studying with the rest of Scripture. Um, you can, there are different topical studies, and the list of resources I gave you before has uh, some topical resources. You can look up topics and trace them through. Um, concordances are always nice. Look up a word and see where else that word is used. <clears throat> And cross-references, if you have a study Bible, there's usually a column there, either in the middle of the page or down the sides of the page, which have cross-references. But you have to be very careful. <clears throat> cross-references are not cross-references <laughs> if they're dealing with a different issue. Uh, it frustrates me when I'm studying and I see... The, the scripture, you know, this verse I'm looking at, and I think, oh, I want to see what someplace else says about that. So I'll find the, you know, they have a little letter next to the word, and you go in the margin, and you find the verse that they list there where that word is used, and I go over to that verse, and it has nothing to do with what this, te it's just where that ver word is used. <laughs> you know? And that can be valuable. If you're doing a word study, it's a quick way to find out where that word is used. But if it's not talking about the same thing the text you're dealing with is talking about, it's not a cross-reference. Okay? You've got to cross-reference the meanings of things, not just the words. And the words, uh, again, the meanings are based on hermeneutics. So you've got to do, before you can take something as a cross-reference, you have to take that through the hermeneutical process to find out what that passage is talking about so you can be sure they're talking about the same thing. I think this is a good reminder that um, any um, reference that we use for the hermeneutical process is helpful, but it's not inspired. Yeah. So we have to remember that it's written by fallible men as well. And uh, and so sometimes they'll, they'll, you know, like a topical study, you might look something up and they'll draw uh, they'll draw correlations between verses that when you study them, you're like, well, that's not really correlated the way the author says it. So you do have to evaluate um, the materials that you're reading because remember that's God didn't provide those uh, you know, those definitions and whatnot. We, we still have to study those and validate so that what we're reading makes sense. Right. right. It's got to be consistent. So I think this is the last one for the equipment. Um, commentaries. On that list of resources I gave you, there are several commentaries listed. We've talked a little bit about commentaries already. They can be useful. <clears throat> Some advantages to good ones. Now, what is a good one? <laughs> one that's correct is a good one. <laughs> you almost have to go through the hermeneutical process for the commentary as well as for the text you're studying. But here's some guidelines, okay? <clears throat> they can be models for interpretation. Now, a good commentary will not only give you a meaning for the text, but it will explain how the commentator got to that meaning. Meaning, excuse me. How they, they went through the hermeneutical process. And a good one will show you that process so you can trace the flow of thought. Okay, so if you're not sure about a particular passage, and you may go through some of these hermeneutical steps, 
and it's still not very clear, you go to the commentary, the good one, and you can say, oh, I didn't do that. <laughs> so you can kind of check yourself on, on your hermeneutics. Uh, also, they can give insights into difficult passages. I put a question mark there. We could discuss this before because quite often when you have a passage that's confusing, you go to commentary to get some clarification and they don't discuss it <laughs> because they were confused as well. You know, they just skip it. Okay. But if you got a good one, you know, then then the writer is is at least going to tackle the issue. He may say in the in the end, well, I don't, I'm not really sure, <laughs> but at least you got something. Okay. Yeah, and the, the really the really good commentaries it doesn't mean that you always come to the same conclusions. Right. But they do a good job of laying out the data. They right. Do a great job of laying out what consideration they went into their interpretation. Mm -hmm. So they, at least you understand why they arrived at the interpretation they did. And having that kind of look at how they arrived there will help you to determine where you agree or disagree with them. Right. So, so good commentaries don't always tell you the answer that they'll, they'll lay out a lot of good data for you to, to kind of consider. Yeah. And again, you have to consider the kind of commentary. For example, Matthew Henry's commentary is a, everybody knows about Matthew Henry, but it's a devotional commentary. It's not very analytical. You know, it'll give you a meaning and tell you how to apply it. But you, so you, as far as hermeneutics goes, you're probably not going to want to read Matthew Henry. If you're studying your Bible for your devotions, then that might be helpful. Uh, this one's tricky. Exposure to past study when there's no time for original study. <laughs> if somebody comes to you and says, we need somebody to teach this class tomorrow. Can you do this? <laughs> and you're thinking, oh, I haven't read that book in 10 years. <laughs> commentaries, they've done the work, a good one. Okay, so you can go to the commentary and kind of figure out what you can say in this sudden assignment <laughs> to teach a class. Yeah. You have to be careful again because, you know, commentaries, we'll talk about some cautions for commentaries in a second here. Um, but they can be helpful in that regard. I remember in a class I took in seminary, Exegesis of Ephesians, great assignment we had was to, to choose a paragraph out of the book of Ephesians, and we could choose whichever paragraph we wanted. And the teacher gave us the process for exegesis, getting the meaning out of the text. So we had to diagram the sentences in Greek and figure out how things went together and come up with a meaning for the passage. We had like a week or two to work on that. And at the end, uh, in class, we were discussing it after we had already gone through the process. And by the end of class, and it was exhausting just reviewing this. It was exhausting doing the assignment, but it was fun. It, the discussion was exhausting as well. <laughs> and at the end, the teacher, who had been a pastor for decades, you know, he said, with kind of a sheepish grin, he said, now... When you guys get into the ministry, you're going to find that you're not always going to have the time to do this kind of study. And one of the students in the class just tossed his pencil in the air and said, then why are we learning this? <laughs> why are we learning how to do this? We're not going to be able... I thought, you learn how to do it so you know how to do it because <laughs> you're supposed to do it. Okay. But if you find yourself in that situation, checking a commentary might be helpful. But again, you got to be careful. Right? 
but if you know how to do it, you also can better evaluate what you're reading. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, the the value of knowing how to do it is that when you read someone else's uh, rationale, you can better evaluate their rationale and how they're reasoning through a passage. So even if all you have is a commentary, it can still be valuable having gone through that process yourself. Where if you haven't gone through that process, you're kind of at the mercy of that commentary. Right. Right. And that gets us into the cautions <laughs> about commentaries. Um, they're not a substitute for original the, uh, original work, you know, your own work. Uh, you got to do the study. If you rely on what somebody else has said, you're cheating yourself, you're cheating your students or whoever you're talking to. Okay. <clears throat> You can't take their word for it. Check the theology. If you're studying church ordinances, baptism, communion, and you're reading a commentary on those things to get some further insight, and you find out that the author is a Southern Baptist, you're going to have to say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> they have particular viewpoints <laughs> on, on communion and baptism. And you have to take that into consideration. Uh, and that kind of leads to denominations as well. I said before there are different kinds of theology, and one kind is denominational theology. Every denomination has its own peculiar take on things. And so you got to know who is writing the commentary. <clears throat> <clears throat> 